one of the quotes you know I often use is a patent quote. So back to your army thing <laughs> that says, when two people are thinking alike, somebody's not thinking. And it's that diversity of thought to be able to really challenge you and to make that product and that answer so much better. This is All Quiet on the Second Front, a podcast where boring conversations around defense tech and national security come to die. Join me, Tyler Sweat, and my Second Front comrades as we dismantle the mundane, cut through the bureaucratic BS to demystify the world of defense tech. But be warned, this is not a typical government podcast. Ready to get weird? This is a Soul Fire production. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I am your host, Tyler Sweat. Welcome to another episode of All Quiet on the Second Front, the podcast where boring defense and government talk comes to die. We're really excited today. We're going to bring a uh, a twofer. So it's a group conversation. We're breaking the mold a little bit. We've got Mike and Roderick coming in from Concentric. They're going to be able to explain, talk about a whole bunch of really interesting trends around cybersecurity, around crisis and sort of risk. And I think for all of you out there that are on the other side of the table, really thinking about, hey, how do I plan? How do I protect? How do I make sure we're sort of we're secure and we're running things the right way. I think this will be a really great conversation to tune into. So Mike Roderick, thanks for stopping by and thanks for making a little bit of time to talk with us today. Excellent. Great to meet you. Want to start with letting each of you give a quick sort of overview. Who are you? What sort of your experience, your background, where you're from, and then what are you working on now? Okay. Thanks, Tyler. I'm Roger Jones, executive chairman of a company called Concentric. Uh, Concentric uh, started 12, 13 years ago as a private security company based mainly on the West Coast. That's been my experience operating private security companies on the West Coast. I've uh, built a cybersecurity company as well. Consulted a lot with the Department of Defense and DNI on future uh, kind of warfare issues. Uh, prior to that, worked for the British government in British intelligence. Um, what I'm working on now is thinking about AI, as I suppose everyone is. I'm uh, going over to the UK's Heads of State Summit on uh, AI safety uh, tonight. So I'll be there for, for this week having a look at that, thinking about what our, and my, my role in that is thinking about what our adversaries are potentially doing in that space. So uh, that's what I'm working on now. And then obviously thinking about trends that are going to affect us and the private security industry, which I think is accelerating, changing and morphing all the time after a period of relative stability through the pandemic and today. So that's that's me in a nutshell. Mike. Great. <laughs> yeah, I'm Mike Lefebvre, uh, graduate out of uh, a trade school there in Annapolis called Naval Academy, uh, was a surface warfare <laughs> officer, was lucky enough to have uh, command at every level ship squadron strike groups and then uh later became a jtf commander my uh as a ship driver by trade and interesting enough during 2005 when i had a strike group it was a horrific earthquake in pakistan got sent ashore as the as we mentioned you know you get, need a good admiral in the himalayas i ended up in the himalayas uh doing the um assessment and operations leading the u.s military operations in uh the earthquake relief where 80,000 died, 178,000 injured, and three and a half million people homeless with winter coming in the Himalayas and the Hindu Kush back in 2005. Went back, I was uh, head of plans and policy for all naval personnel, which was a uh, great insight. And then uh, I'd say no kind D goes unpunished, was sent back to Pakistan and was the senior mill rep from 2008 
interesting times over there to do the coordination. I was a JTF commander for all U.S. forces Pakistan from eight through the bin Laden raid. And then um, afterwards went over and became the director of strategic operational planning at our National Counterterrorism Center. Retired, uh, did some odds and ends, and uh, was lucky enough to join Concentric about four and a half years ago as the CEO. And so uh, it's been quite a ride. So it's, uh, it's quite a career both of you have had. Mike, I will say uh, I would be remiss to not point out that despite having an unbelievable career, you still were unable to get into West Point. So <laughs> I know it was one of my failures. <laughs> no, guys, I would. Uh, I mean, there's going to be a hundred different ways we could take this conversation. I'd be interested as you and Roderick alluded to this a little bit, right? I think we had this because of the pandemic, and it sort of upended. You know, how humans were engaging, it upended capital markets, it upended sort of the, the societal fabric by which we sort of live. Now that we've sort of seen this, like one, a return to sort of post-pandemic, but I think we've seen this diaspora of the workforce into all of these sort of virtual or work from home. And with that, You've seen endpoints and networks and access and everything just leave maybe the, the confines of the old walled garden of the office. You know, using that as sort of a backdrop, you know, given sort of the, the continually friction-laden nature of geopolitics right now, how are you guys looking at sort of the overall sort of state of the cybersecurity market? Like, are you seeing... A bunch of increased threat? Are you seeing more challenges around governance because of sort of changing business models? Is it state actors? Sort of what's what's top of mind for you guys? I'll go first, Mike. And I, uh, just to sort of put this in context, this is how Mike and I work. Mike's experience is amazingly macro from the, you know, at the national level. So he's been in the in in the room for some amazing decisions around cyber. I have not. Mine mine is much more uh, worm's eye view as you as you will. But I can say from our perspective, the pandemic changed our, the way we would use human capital tremendously. So we were located in San Francisco and Seattle. We had offices there with people in them. We obviously changed that as everyone did from work from home. That actually enabled us to really change our talent base enormously. We were able to hire much more actively from the veteran community, and we were able to hire lots of more specialist talent into the company. So for us, just on that topic of remote work, I would say 10x our talent pool improved us amazingly. We're able to hire people, particularly from the special operations community that, that know how to work without supervision. What I would say about cybersecurity from what I'm seeing, um, what I continue to see is that the cybersecurity market is, I would say most things have been solved in that place and zero trust environments and all that kind of stuff was operating prior to the pandemic and now it's just accelerated. I think the game in cyber now is changing to disinformation, privacy, AI, the whole set of new challenges which which haven't been addressed yet. And I would say I would, I'd give you one example of that. So so for us we're a you know small medium sized business. We're able to manage our cyber infrastructure pretty well. There's lots of great solutions out there just like everyone else. The the, the days of just JP Morgan being able to afford all the solutions have changed quite a bit. There's some good solutions for most companies now. And, and the more money you have, the better security you have. I mean, I think that that equation holds true. 
But what nobody can really tell you what to do or how to combat is different disinformation attacks right now. And, and so that that sounds kind of hysterical, but if you it, it combines with AI. What is happening at the nation state level, Russian disinformation attacks and Russian disinformation globally is learned by everybody else, uh, the massive organized crime groups that operate online, and they can they can come after you. And they can turn all kinds of different information against you, fake things against you, you know, impersonate you, all of this kind of stuff. And I think we're only, what is it, 10 months into ChatGPT being live, and there's now WormGPT and FraudGPT, there's different smaller large language models that can be used in this space. So that's what I'm worried about. That's what we're thinking about is for ourselves and also for our clients. How, and you know, one of the questions I've asked my team, we have an internal cyber team is, how do we recognize that we're under a disinformation attack, number one, and number two, what do we do about it? And and there's not great answers for that right now, whereas there are great answers for cybersecurity. There's ISO standards, there's all of that good stuff that's been developed over the last 10, 15 years. So I would say the game is, has kind of moved on into information operations writ large now. And so we think about that from our perspective, and I think we're starting to think about it from our client's perspective. And yeah, no great answers. And if people are building companies in that space, that would probably be a great space to operate in. But that's my two cents, Mike. Yeah, no, I'd second what Roderick said. Many of the conferences I've gone to, you know, Cypher Brief and some others, you know, Tyler, that we're familiar with in Aspen. The interesting thing is when, you know, people during the COVID, like you said, all of a sudden the threat spectrum increased drastically. You know, you weren't under the protection of your server in the office or whatever, and everything went remote and mobile. And boy, that threat surface really expanded. And I think we gave great opportunities for for cyber strikes, ransomware, and so forth that you're seeing, not only from state actors, but anybody in a criminal intent to be able to do it. And they're, and it's easy, but they're becoming very sophisticated with their methodology and so forth. But I couldn't agree more with Roderick is that I think the disinformation and misinformation, as we're seeing it, you know, we saw some indications of that during, you know, early on in 2016 and others. But wow, when you think about what's happening, even in, uh, you know, Israel Hamas war and what's happened in the Middle East and what's happening in Ukraine, the amount of disinformation and targeted because of more sophisticated methods is uh, quite sophisticated and uh, is causing. It's pretty, it's pretty challenging right now, right? I mean, is yeah. to to Mike and I mean for, for both of you as you're sitting, sort of in leadership roles right now, making sort of critical decisions, but also sort of given that lens of your career, I think it's the you're sort of seeing the rise of this like hyper-empowered individual that's able to generate effects at scale that are previously reserved for, right, like I think you got to it, right? Like nation state teams. So if you flip that around to sort of at that operating team level or at that corporate board level, how are you either doing it yourselves or advising folks to sort of get to truth and get to facts so that you can start to make decisions, right? Because in a seemingly just like ocean of noise, how are you finding the signal or two by which you're then able to make a decision? I think that's an absolutely fascinating question. And I would say, I'm not sure I have the answer, but I have some like trends to point to. I think the world got immensely more complicated 
through COVID and, and after. And you can see in the corporate environment, Lazard Bank, Goldman Sachs, a couple of others have started to stand up geopolitical intelligence units. Really interesting trend, you know, because everyone thought we'd solved the world. So so everyone's kind of moved on. But I, I think we're not alone in thinking that this is like really <laughs> changing rapidly. And how you get to truth? Well, I, I would say the complexity of all this is is really accelerating. And, and what we do in our company is that one of the massive growth businesses for us has been to embed specialists into companies to try and translate this noise and information overload and, and then make that make sense for a company. So 10 years ago, you would buy a tool that would tell you what the threat was in, say, Kenya, right? That is no longer what anyone is doing. The tools are so complex and to understand the threat environment for say a US company operating in Kenya, and that's maybe more simple in some ways than say Mexico, it is really impossible. So what we're doing is providing government, usually government trained experts to sit in those spaces and essentially act as specialist translators between uh, these tools, which we're all aware of, whether they be the big famous ones like Palantir or the smaller ones that are monitoring darknet or just the basic geopolitics, and then translate that in a consumable way for that company. And I'm just going to pause on that phrase, consumable way, because we're all deluged by uh, information. And one of the, Mike and I book that we wrote, Endgame First, we have a chapter in there in communications. And one of the key things we learned, or, and Mike already knew, but like <laughs> taught us is that communicating in a way that people hear you is, is really important. And in virtual environments, that could be Slack, email, text, something on a website, a blog, a substack, whatever it is, right? So so you have to communicate in multiple channels now. And so, so the role of our specialist translators, as you will, or our analysts or our kind of specialists is to find the right communications channels in those companies to kind of report information. So, so I think that's what we're doing. And that's why we've seen the business grow a lot in that space. And it is as a result of tremendous information complexity and then having to individualize that or make that make sense for the person then i'd love to talk more about super empowered individuals but i'll let mike get a word in enjoy <laughs> but i think it's an outstanding question that signal the noise is so crazy in fact Ryder and i were just talking about that what we're sensing in the environment right now from our clients and others is this anxiety level that's mm -hmm. growing from from all this uncertainty and ambiguity what is truth? We have a problem, you know, we can't even agree on what truth is. And so, as Roderick said, I think the key is through crisis and through that, you know, some of the things in the in the book we talk about is to be able to, to take that information and to be able to distill it down and really try to find out, try not to respond to the initial reaction. You know, there, you know, we used to always say <laughs> kind of like, you know, the first report's always wrong. And then I like to say there's always three sides to every story to be able to really delve into it and to be able to do that at analytics to provide that value and to be able, as Roderick said, to communicate that across your company, both interior and exterior, and how you do that to have everybody kind of take deep breaths <laughs> and relax and kind of, okay, here's what we know, here's what we're going to be able to do and uh, provide it in a composed way that keeps people from that 
I'm sure you remember during COVID. I mean, people were like, oh my God, I can't go outside. What am I going to do? We're going to all take that anxiety and stress was really, really quite something. We also have an interesting thing on a book because it does, it, it works on people in very different ways. We have a, a kind of a chapter on mental health because that was important as well because people were really kind of, Am I going to lose my job? But what's going to happen? You know, how are you know, kids going to be able to train? Now I'm burdened with, you know, home care and all sorts of things, as well as elderly care and couldn't get around. So it is an interesting one because it's, it's what we're seeing is that increase in anxiety across the board. Yeah, I would. Uh, I mean, echo, I, I totally get the anxiety. And also, I think I think as you came out of COVID, it just it seemingly felt like the world didn't slowly speed back up. It just immediately jumped back to full run rate. So a question or maybe an inflection on, you know, that conversation around, hey, the first report is sort of always wrong or three sides to a story sort of in that pursuit of, of truth. The other side of that is the, the criticality of both precise or precision and brevity in communications when somebody is sort of stressed out or under emotional duress or something. How have you found either coaching or assessing for or sort of building teams? I find that, and I ask that because, you know, I used to get a, uh, I used to get a bunch of guff because everyone was like, hey, Tyler hires people who's been in, who have been in gunfights. And I was like, no, like Tyler hires people who understand like the value of a word. Because if you're in a gunfight, you get like 10 words out and you're communicating a whole bunch of things. And then you're on to the next thing. So it's less about the action and it's more about that ability to transmit in a manner that will be received. And I heard you guys use the word consumed, right? So how are you, you know, finding or building sort of folks or coaching them on it to be able to transmit in a way? And then also to think about decision-making in a way that they're capable of consuming. Because again, if we go back to that sort of signal and noise, and while I've got access to all of this data, all of these streams, all of this stuff, how can I distill that down and sort of make a clear decision and communicate it? Um, I'd be really curious where you guys are seeing that because I can see folks just getting absolutely caught in a do loop there. I think I, if I go first with a slightly offbeat answer, I, I can't, you know, like everyone in our position, if you, if you, there's two kinds of reading you, you need to do. You know, there's that kind of information where you're just making tactical decisions. And then there's there's the reading where you're needing to understand the topic quite deeply or deeply enough to make a decision. But what I've shown our team is actually taking, say, a 70-page report, uploading it into chat GPT using the PDF plugin function. And then I've shown them that I can actually get that to summarize that. For, I can ask it to tell me one of the 10 bullet points or explain this to me in a simpler way or a more complicated way. So this, the arrival of these uh, AI co-pilots, if you will, has really checked. So, so, so you can now show your teams like, okay, just produce the information. I, I don't, I, you know, produce the information. And if it's 70 pages, great, just upload it into the, into the AI system, because then I can ask it like the 10 bullet points I need to know. Or I can, yep. I can ask it to make it more complicated and the language more complicated or more simple. And you could put grade levels in, have this, you know, be at graduate level, have this be at like fourth grade language level. You can do all those kinds of things. And I think that is 
that is fundamentally changing how we we communicate because you're taking steps out there. You know, you needed somebody to actually kind of synthesize that for you as a leader in the past and give you the 10 most salient bullet points. But now you don't. You can just say, just give me the raw, like, 80 major. I never thought about it that way, that it's buying down some of, like, maybe the lack of EQ in folks because you're able to sort of contact. That's a really interesting way. Yeah. Yeah. To look at a chat GPT capability. All right. That's it. Yeah. No, no, it's, it's just, and, and we were really, once that capability started to hit, we were fascinated by that. And what, you know, I started uploading manuals and complex stuff into that. And, and then just, yeah, explain it to me. I, you know, it's, it's, yeah. you know, we, we play with it. Uh, so anyway, I, I, that's, that's, that's my sort of like life hack, <laughs> leadership <laughs> hack. Good one. Yeah. It's a good yeah. one. Yeah. And and why we're so good, we come at it from different angles. I, I looked at it from the from the team aspect, you know, kind of training the team. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, a good, good team, you know, we're 300 some folks spread across the world. And, but being able to build that common where we're all going, what is the company about? What do we need to be able to do? We manage risks everywhere to keep people safe. And so it's the idea of having that relationships among the team. And the trust built to be able to do that. And then since we are dispersed, then, you know, as leader, I think, you know, Roderick and I provide that environment to be able to have that discourse and people being free to be able to challenge things and and what have you. And then I think as a leader, you have to give, you know, good, clear intent. You know, what is it that we want to achieve? And then the ability, and there's risk in that, but you got to share so much information with your team so that they have the same information as you have. And with guidance and the right team, then you just empower them. Because in the, there was a, a phrase, you know, it's kind of like how fast you need to be. Well, you need to be the speed of war. Well, in this case, you need to be the speed of business to be able to, to look at that and make those decisions in whatever time frame you need to be able to solve it. Sometimes it's very fast and you're you're making decisions in in uncertainty and ambiguity. And there's other times it it gives you some ability to be able to reflect, like you know, Roderick was saying, to be able to digest these things. Or maybe this, you just have to go on um, on your basis. But I think to your point, I think it's I think it's a team that's that's really kind of the essence of of managing through that risk and uncertainty in, in these uncertain times. It's funny, I heard you uh, sort of allude to, you know, information sharing and making sure that folks have access to and are sort of hearing things all at the same time. It's a, uh, I spend a lot of my headspace trying to think, I think it's all of us do as corporate leaders. Yeah. Hey, I, am I doing sort of like minimum viable governance the right way? How are we doing information flows? And I was listening to an interview with Jensen, the CEO of NVIDIA talking about, mm. and like I had had it beaten into me, like, you know, the rule of four and how you think about span of control and all of that, right? Like all yeah. that stuff everybody grew up with. And <laughs> he, they're like, hey, how many direct reports do you have? And he offhands like 40. And I was like, what? And I was on the treadmill and I was like, wait a second, you could have just said 40. And what it turns out is it's essentially like 40 direct reports and it's essentially like no direct reports because you sort of got folks that are in charge of different teams and initiatives, independent of sort of like rank and all that. And he transmits information just straight. So they come in and, hey, we're making a decision about X. 
hey, I'll have seniors in the room. I'll have college interns in the room. I'll have everyone. And everyone gets the information at the same time. His big point was, hey, we're not going to create sort of like asymmetric advantage based on access to information inside an organization. Because all that's going to do is create like an organizational drag coefficient that's just going to, over time, it's going to compound into just like gum in the gears. And I heard that, I heard the team aspects or getting the right people, you know, the, the sort of hire, assess, all of that. But I also heard to make sure they've got access to the information. Was I hearing that right? Am I pulling on the right thread there, Mike? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so critical to be able to, if you want them to make the decision, you need to have the same information that you or Roderick and I would get to be able to do that. And I think that is so key. And there's some risks in that, you know, because there is sensitive information, but you have a team that you trust and and you let them go execute and have fun. And that's what that's what makes it. And, you know, Roderick and, and I have been able to set the tone for the company that that's really a culture that really thrives in that aspect. I always get blamed for too many people in the room, but I always ask, you know, in a meeting or in a session, who should be there that isn't there? Because, you know, one of the quotes, you know, I often use is a patent quote. So back to your army thing <laughs> that says, when two people are thinking alike, somebody's not thinking. And it's that diversity of thought to be able to really challenge you and to make that product and that answer so much better because they come at it from very different angles to be able to solve the problem. And I think that's the beauty of the company that Roderick has built here. That's awesome. I think Mike, Mike's, Mike's being a bit missing a point there a little bit. <laughs> um, in order to have everyone in the room, you need you need a lot of trust. And Mike's built a really high functioning mm-hmm. trust culture in the company. We we operate in you know a complex environment with very sensitive information, and so you know we trust everyone with it, and and that has worked really well. And um, we we see obviously examples around us where that doesn't happen, where where organizations don't have that trust, and they're not able to do that. So, but that comes back to building culture which Mike is exceptional at. So so we benefit from that, you know, tremendously. I think it, it would be a lot harder to have lots of people in the room if you didn't have trust at the heart of the organization. I would agree with that. I think it absolutely comes down to, you know, there's an aspect of sort of, there's an aspect of trust. There's an aspect of sort of shared, shared vision and sort of building in some of those cultural artifacts on what it means to be part of the team. And then there is... You know, there's the other side of it that's actually empowering and enabling, right? I think a lot of folks in leadership positions will look out at their team and say, oh, you're empowered to go make a decision. You're empowered to to do whatever. Do they have the resources? Do they actually have the authority? Are they enabled to go action on that? And I find there to be a little bit of a discrepancy at times between the two. So I, I offer that just as a... Uh, I value the fact that I think it's important that both of you hit on that because it is an underappreciated, it is an oft-talked, less done thing. So I normally ask, normally ask a standard question at the end. I'm going to change it a little bit because this has been a really, really, really interesting conversation. So I'll frame this, and this is, uh, I think our, our listeners and viewers know we do not script most of this. This is just another example of sort of the host going rogue. <laughs> You guys are sitting at this intersection of geopolitics and capital markets and sort of commercial IP and cyber threats, all of that. Super interesting space. You each have very unique backgrounds, 
whether that is at the strategic level, making some of the most pressing decisions, you know, the nation level, whether that is, I think you sort of use the the wormhole, but sort of like at that pointy edge of the spear, Roderick, like where the, you know, where the rubber meets the road. As you're looking out and you're sitting across the table from, you know, founders or operators or folks in the government or capital allocators that are looking around sort of defense and national security, what's the one thing they should really be paying attention to, either positively or negatively, and why? And I'll let each of you give one. We'll just be super curious to see where that goes. I'm going to go uh, slightly non-traditional because I, I think we're in an inflection point around public safety in the United States. If you look across certainly California, where I live, the number one voter issue is public safety. And so at the same time, you've got an acceleration and increase in capital allocation to defense tech from a billion dollars to $16 billion, I think, this year. And so there's an enormous interest in an investment going into technology, data, machines, robots, AI, all of that to like fight our wars overseas or defend, you know, for national security. Whereas in actual fact, you know, you've got a long-term decline of perceived public safety and actual public safety in the United States, which could be handily tackled by the private sector. Now, you obviously have tremendous policy issues in that space, but I think voters would, are going to demand better action for that. And, uh, and most public safety systems are you know 150 years old and, and way past their, their sell-by date. And right now in American cities, we're accepting a level of public safety that we don't have to. Technology has a lot of answers for this. And, and, it, and, and what's interesting about it is that process started in the 90s with CompStat and like kind of doing analysis around you know where crimes were happening and then it kind of stopped you know as everyone's attention went everywhere else and and you look at most police departments around the us now they're, they're like they're really not forward leaning they don't use data too much they don't use the private sector to kind of take away from front lines they, they're not as there's no there's sort of no innovation unit or r d around this stuff and uh and I think it's a misallocation of, of capital really I mean uh you know you could there's and so I think there's going to be interest in that as a as an entrepreneur or as someone that's interested in this space i think there's going to there have been some successful uh, companies in that space but i think given voter demand which will necessarily have to be responded to by city governments and state governments i think there's going to be an opportunity in that space i don't think it's going to be without bumps in the road but that's my take on it that's a great answer that is uh hey guys the first time someone's probably brought that up on the show i guess it very astute observation. It goes back to the original thing we talked about, this uncertainty and this uh, anxiety that people are having. And I think, you know, like Roderick said, from, from the security and the environment that they're in, as well as what's going on in world events. And I think from my perspective, it's, it's probably the idea of having people be confident or reassured how to manage that risk in uncertain times. How do you get people or how do you present the ability to provide that comfortability in this very uncertain times um, okay. with lots going on, distill it down, get them into the understanding that the world is not a zero and a one and there's so many shades of gray. And how do you help people through that period where they're being bombarded by everything from the misinformation, disinformation, the news reports, 
basically three potential hotspot con- conflicts that are going on in Ukraine and Russia and Israel and Hamas and China, Taiwan. And then you see, you know, what's happening in the economy and the environment. So there's a lot of things that are that are stressing people out. And how do you distill it down to the essentials to be able to make people comfortable in that in that very uncertain times? Yeah, I think it's a uh, an important reminder of the humanity behind organizations and technology and the criticality of ensuring that not just physical safety, but also that sort of mental and emotional psychological safety is there so that they can be the best selves. Correct. Yeah, guys, this was awesome. I uh, I say this more often now as we're just continuing to have awesome conversations on the show. I feel like we could do this for a uh, a few more hours with maybe a bottle of whiskey and some really good ideas on how to change the world. <laughs> so, yeah, I want to I want to thank both of you for taking some time to come by the show and share your thoughts with the group. Uh, this was awesome, and thanks everybody for tuning in. We'll see you soon. All right, what's up, everyone? This is David Rounds. Join me and my favorite technologist and second front compatriot, Enrique Odi, as we cut through the cacophony of the news cycle and reload your arsenal to annihilate boring defense tech takes. Let the fun begin. All right, what's going on, homie? How we doing? Man, it's an amazing day. Good to see you again. Every day is a gift. It is. We uh, kind of talk a little bit about uh, enhancing data sharing today since, you know, I've heard data is the new oil and I've heard that, uh, you know, the Air Force is going to advance API standardization to make sure that we've got enhanced data sharing in the Air Force. I mean, that sounds like an OER bullet if they're still OERs. That sounds like somebody came up with a big strategy to, to go ahead and have something they've done. In the face of all of the challenges, so I'm gonna, I'll, I'll lead you a little bit here. Of course you will. Right? There's a ton of shit that's not going right from a technological landscape. Air Force and DOD-wide, interoperability, sharing, all of that. Talk to me about your reaction to seeing, say, hey, a big initiative is going to be API standardization. Is it the right thing? Is that where we get the C for combined now or coalition? It's coalition JADC2. I think we're running out of letters oh, to add to it. Oh, man, you're just trying to get me all fired up on this one. Um, the softball, baby. <laughs> so, okay, let's start with the first word, standardization. I'm going to hope that that was just some really energetic uh, writer who used the word standardization. It is hard to standardize because once you standardize, it becomes static, which means you can't adapt to the future. Now, I have, look, Jay Bonchi, they, the article mentions he's leading it. I love the dude. I think he gets it. He has a good vision for technology. So I'm, yeah, sure. I'm thinking what we're going to be getting out of this is less about standardization, but more about openness and documentation. That's the key about an API. You can't standardize them, but you can create them so long as you document them and publish those documentations. So I think, you know, I I trust we're going to get to the right places. We've got to avoid standardization as a term. Now on the other part. So does standardization lead to coalition JADC2? No, it doesn't. Look, look, we have, even you had every API working perfectly, unless we actually change some policies on how we tag data, how we classify data. Heck, we can't even share unclassified between... U.S. IL-4, IL-5, U.K. official, Australia protected, NATO restricted, like we can call these things a million things, but they're not interoperable in terms of policy. And so for the Air Force, who's right, I think we need some technologists sitting in SAF-IA that redefine our policy on data sharing with our partners so that actually the APIs might actually be useful. Uh, So that again, like I 
I'm glad we throw more letters on every acronym, but I don't think it actually helps. Yep, I will leave that there. I think you've said it perfectly. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Wouldn't be a podcast without some show notes. So check them out to learn more about Second Front and what we're up to. Stay weird. Stay weird.